Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have someone very, very exciting, someone that has done a lot for the startup ecosystem and someone also that uh, has been there and has done it. So Fabrice Grinda, welcome today to the Dealmaker Show. Thank you for having me. So you've been, normally, I mean, we, we typically interview people that have done this, you know, maybe once uh, or maybe twice, but in terms of like doing a transaction, whether that is an exit or fundraising, but you've done it all and you've done it all from all different fronts, from the entrepreneurial side of the table, from the investor side of the table. But I'd like to uh, begin today with, with really the entrepreneurial side. So how many companies have you founded and, and exited by now? Yeah, it's, it's actually a little bit hard to count because it depends, um, you know, if you include, for instance, my first company that helped me pay for college was a, a little uh, uh, sole proprietorship where I was doing import-export of computer equipment from the U.S. to Europe uh, to France where I was for. So if you think of, like, companies that where I was founder and CEO that were venture-backed, so I'm actually limiting the, the scope, um, it's three large companies. Um, uh, one, one which is uh, in a company called Auckland, which is an eBay type company for France. One was Zingy, which is a mobile content company selling ringtones, etc., from 2001 to 2005, and that went from zero to 200 million revenues in four years. And the last one was OLX, uh, which is the largest classified side of the world with uh, over 350 million unique visitors a month and 3,000 employees. Uh, beyond that, I've also founded but in the role of chairman another six or seven companies um, and where I was co-founder sometimes acting CEO but usually usually chairman got it so let's talk about the uh, the side of the equation of, of, of really being a co-founder and a CEO so I understand that you went to Princeton then you went to McKinsey and then you got for, you got started with the with the first one right the Auckland so this is a, a company that you had Bernard Arnaud from France Financing. So, so how how does this company really come about? Yeah, so, so I went to Princeton. Maybe you know I was already a tech nerd. I, I grew up uh, in the 1980s. I got my first PC when I was 10 back in 1984. So I grew up like programming, building computers, building BBSs, um, and my role models were already at that time. I guess Bill Gates and Steve Jobs. And I went to Princeton knowing I wanted to be a tech entrepreneur. Um, I definitely be an entrepreneur like they were, though the internet didn't really exist in, in, the, in the proper form, given that I went to Princeton in 92. Um, and I only, again, we were online and we had like direct 10 megabit T1 lines in a room, but Mosaic only came about in 94 and then Netscape in 95. Now, in Princeton, as I said, I built a company to export computer equipment from the US to Europe, which paid for college. The thing is, at that time, I was very much like Sheldon Cooper. I was an introverted, shy, um, frankly, academic. And even though I was getting all these A-pluses, I was really good in school, um, I felt I didn't have the, the tool set to succeed as an entrepreneur. And so when I graduated uh, from Princeton and I was, like, top of my class, I decided to join McKinsey because I kind of considered it as business school except they pay you. And... For me, where I was, my personal development, you know, I was 21 years old, it, it made a lot of sense. Uh, and I learned all the things I needed to learn. So I, I improved my oral and written communication skills, my ability to work in teams. I took public speaking classes. McKinsey is really good at investing in these people. But again, I went to McKinsey knowing I wanted to be a tech entrepreneur. I, didn't, I never saw it as a the end-all, be-all where I was going to spend the rest of my professional career. And I actually went there thinking I would miss the bubble. But lo and behold, um, in 1998, it was 23, I had not missed the bubble. I felt I'd learned uh, what I needed to learn, and they decided to go and build a company. Now, the issue, of course, is when you're 23, and especially back then where things were more complex, took more money and, and more time, a lot of things were out of my reach. I, I had a lot of great ideas. I wanted to build an internet bank because I've mostly been working in, in financial services at McKinsey, but in order to do that, you needed a banking license. You needed, like, millions of, ca of capital 
things that I feel would be available to a 23-year-old. And and if you think of companies like Amazon, where you need like supply chain management and logistics and inventory, and again, way more capital than was available. But at Princeton, I studied economics, and I like the way markets and marketplaces create you know, and bring transparency and liquidity to otherwise opaque and fragmented markets. And so that idea of creating markets in general appealed to me, regardless of the category I was doing it in. And kind of randomly fell on the eBay website and they, they, and, and kind of fell in love at first sight of like, wow, like this is a really interesting in terms of like, Taking what was fragmented in these uh, types of markets and garage sales, et cetera, and, and putting it online and bringing massive liquidity. And so I decided, oh, I should do this and I should do this in Europe. And kind of coincidentally, just after that, they thought um, to go public. So they published their S1, which kind of became the base of my business plan. And I sold everything I had. I left McKinsey and uh, in uh, the July of 1998, um, I moved back to France to to bring the internet and to bring auctions and Auckland um, uh, to France. Got it. And you raised for this company 18 million, and then you went on to 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 do an uh, an exit to to get this company acquired and and sold the stock to to one of the investors. So I guess from this transaction? Well, yeah, not quite. Uh, okay. So first tell us the story. Yeah, yeah, so I sold everything I had. Uh, I, 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 So I left Princeton with like 50K in the bank because I built my first startup. With that 50K, I did two things. 25K, I bought a one-bedroom apartment uh, for like $115,000. The rest, of course, was a down payment, uh, and so I borrowed a mortgage. I sold it for 185K 18 months later. Uh, the other 25K I invested in, th- in four stocks at Intel, Microsoft, Yahoo, and uh, well, I can't remember the other one. And sold that, made like 300K. And so net of taxes, I had like 300K. So I, I, I put all that 300K in the startup okay. and, and started building the site, hired the team. And while we were competing mostly with people that were Technically focused, no one had thought through, okay, how'd you build liquidity? And so we had hired category managers for like coins and stamps and all the different categories. And we, we had aggregated a lot of inventory. So we'd launch with actual, you know, supply, supply and acquisition strategy and more content that was appealing and attractive than our competitors. And then the bubble started inflating. And, it, and though it took a while talking to many VCs and getting many no's, as it started inflating, <coughs> got um, an offer from um, Bernard Arnault's fund called Europe and Web for $18 million. Um, the reality is that actually, it's interesting, even then there was an opportunity. I, c- I could have sold to eBay at that time for like $20 million, uh, but being a delusional 24-year-old at that point, I didn't realize how much money that was and, 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 and how life-changing that was. And I'm like, yeah, now I'm going to conquer the world. And by the way, I'm not doing this for money anyway. Um, so I said no. I raised money, and we used it to grow. Ultimately, raised a lot more money. I think total, we ended up raising fifty or sixty million. Right. Um, the outcome was not as great as uh, I would have hoped it to be, but for multiple reasons. I mean, we we then had a really we had at the top of the bubble at the peak in like February two thousand, and the buy it offer from eBay. I think we're like three hundred million in cash, but uh, we're stuck. I can't remember if it wouldn't have mattered. eBay was a great company. Sadly, I couldn't convince Arno to sell, and he frankly didn't want to sell because he he liked to be the old industrialist who had understood the internet. And so his interest and incentive was actually uh, just to remain shareholder kind of forever. Uh, so ultimately, though, I sold when I realized our interests were, you know, were, were not aligned, and he wanted to sell, frankly, to to another company he was an investor in, which was in a different business model, which was called uh, QXL Ricardo. I sold to him, and he sold to QXL Ricardo. So was not, you know, it's not as though I used that. It wasn't a great exit. Um, the bubble had burst. The valuations were a lot lower. It wasn't. I didn't sell in the right time, the right conditions, the right people. It was an amazing learning experience, but definitely not one that was financially very fruitful. Got it. So I guess now talking about the learnings, like from this experience itself, what was your biggest learning? Many learnings. I mean, when you're picking a VC, it's really like you're getting married. They're the people that are going to be on your board for better or worse. And, and they need to be by you and sent by you uh, in, in, in the bad times, especially. And the issue is Arnaud had offered the highest valuation and, and, and the most money but his team didn't really come from the industry. They didn't really understand what I, I was doing. And frankly, many of them were actually jealous. And so they they were not the right investor. And I, I should have raised 
even though the uh, the uh, the valuations were lower and, and the uh, capital offer was lower, I should have raised with someone who really got what we were trying to do and whose interests, objectives, ambitions were more aligned. And 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 that's generalized. I mean, when you're raising money. You're actually not raising from, let's say, Sequoia. You're actually raising from that partner who is at that firm. And so what really matters is not the reputation of the firm and, and, and nor, frankly, even the reputation of the partner. It's your personal relationship with that partner. How do you get along with them? Do, do, do you have rapport? And do you think they're going to be in, in your, in your camp? They're going to support you, uh, in the time of need. And so really picking your VC correctly is, is a skill and, and, and especially as a first-time entrepreneur, we have a tendency to overweight valuation and overweight capital raise as opposed to picking the person who's really the right partner for, for that company for you personally uh, on a go-forward basis. And and perhaps and you should be raising too much at too high a price because then you price yourself out of exit. You're pricing yourself for perfection and it's creating issues that, that you don't necessarily think about when ever you're euphoric and everyone's so vast and everything's great. And so trying to like right size the valuation, the investment, et cetera, makes a lot of sense as well. Um, and then of course I learned a lot more about like what, you know, the thing is again, being that young and naive, I, I didn't pick necessarily the right lawyer. They didn't take me seriously because I was so young and it was France. And I didn't know anything like what's a drag, what's a tag along, what's uh preemptive rights. And, and the one right that would have changed everything in my legal contract would have been if we had a, a drag and we could have sold when eBay offered to buy. And we didn't have that. Uh, and so, I, you know, a lot of those mistakes. Now, I also a lot of mistakes on the, on the hiring side, uh, uh, the VCs were lobbying for me to hire people with experience uh, and gray hair. The the in the issue is they were more used to large organizations where everything had to be by consensus. As, as a result, they wanted things moved. Once I hired them, things moved slower. And it's great to have people with experience, but you need people that also have a cultural fit and are willing to you know move fast and break things. And in, in, which is the approach that was needed in the competitive environment we're in. And so we didn't gel necessarily perfectly, and and so hiring for fit played a much hard, a larger role than I expected uh, on a hiring perspective. And I was overemphasizing, you know, the resume and their and their background experience. Got it. I mean, obviously, a, a really big learning experience for you. And and then you return back to the U.S. and 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 you actually start another company. You go at it along with Singy. So could you talk to us a little bit about Singy? Yeah. So. After the bubble burst and I sold and it kind of failed, I was thinking, okay, what do I do next? And, and, I, and I, I spent a fair amount of time soul searching. You know, do I go do, get go back to McKinsey? Do I go? Do I go to business school? Do I go and run new media for a traditional uh, or a digital for a media company? And realize, you know what? At the end of the day, you know, maybe I missed the biggest opportunity to succeed in in life early on, and. And maybe the internet is dead, uh, and it was never going to be as big as people expected it to be, and as I expected it to be, and it was overhyped. But you know, so what? I I didn't do this to make money. I did this because I liked what I was doing. I like creating something out of nothing, and I like the process of being an entrepreneur. And the the underlying ambition was to be an entrepreneur, to build something out of nothing. And and, and so in this new world of 2001. I had a new set of constraints, and that constraint was capital was no longer available. VCs were no longer investing, and so I needed an idea that could be profitable very quickly with very little capital. And I decided, you know, my core motivation is being an entrepreneur, and in a way, the idea that I pursue matters less. Um, and it, it's just important that it meets my the, the constraints of the time. And so I actually didn't particularly like uh, the idea of Zingy, which is selling ringtones and mobile games in, in the U.S., um, but I felt it was an idea that could be successful with reasonably little capital and reasonably, and it could build a profitable company because I'd seen it work uh, rather well, both in Europe and, and in Asia, and the U.S. at that time was way behind from a mobile perspective. And so I sold it yet again every, I, everything I had. I reinvested everything I had and moved to the U.S. where – I have to admit, the first few years were really, really tough. I mean, I called VCs to tell them I was doing BDC Telecom, and every BDC company had gone under, like the Pest.com, WebVents of the world, every telecom company had gone under. Um, 
no one wanted to invest anything. I, I ended up living in New York, essentially $2 a day. I slept at the office on the couch. I would shower in the office. I couldn't even afford coffee. I was living up ramen noodles. We missed payroll 27 times over the course of two and a half years. And I, I was raising money, but I would raise it in like 5K increments. And so I'd meet, you know, some guy who's like, who and convinced me to give me 10K and woo. You know, UP, I'd make payroll for this for these two weeks. And then, of course, we'd be out of money again. So I'd go to the employees of like, I don't understand. The bank made a mistake yet again with a wire. They're really incompetent, whereas really I just didn't have cash. Uh, but ultimately, I'd find someone else to give you 5K. So I raised 1.4 million, but I really raised them in like 5 to 10K increments over the course yeah. of multiple years. And at some point, I, saw, I ran out of people I could raise money from and, you know, missed payroll for four and a half months in a row. Uh, at that point, we went from 27 people to seven. I guess uh, when you stop paying people, they, they stop showing up for work. So yeah. <laughs> it kind of made sense. So it, it, it was really, really, really rough. Um, but, you know, and so doing, we laid the foundations for success. No one else was doing this. And so little by little, we signed all the music companies. Little by little, we signed all the artists. Little by little, we signed all the phone companies. And... Once the business started taking off, it took off like a rocket ship, and uh, we survived by building this the old-fashioned way through profits. And, and cash flow profitability was really what mattered, not EBITDA profitability. And I remember very clearly the day we became profitable on uh, August 15 of 2003, and um, that was a yeah, massive cause for celebration, and I knew we were saved. Yeah, I can imagine. So, And, and you were talking before that, one of your biggest uh, lessons was around the team and, and investors. So what, what was the, uh, the team like and the shareholding team initially with Singy? Well, here it was completely different because th there is no VC investing. So it's not as though I had a choice between who I was investing from. So uh, <laughs> the, once you have a lot of term sheets, a lot of VCs who want to invest in you, you know, picking the one that's best for you for your marriage – it, is, it, it makes total sense. In this case, it was more desperation. It's like, I need cash. I would take money, frankly, from whoever was willing to give it to me. And it really didn't matter. And so it was completely desperate. I, I had a, a friend who had built a little micro fund from his families who gave me half a million. I had a, my father gave me some money. My father's friends gave me some money. And frankly, random people I met from every walks of life. The friends from McKinsey had given me some money. And like, I, re I really raised from anyone and anywhere, everyone and anyone. There was, there was no constraint. Um, and so it, it was very different. At, at the end of the day, I also, I also invested everything I had. Uh, I owned 53.6% uh, of the company. Um, I guess the CTO, I had a co-founder and CTO with like 6%, and then the rest of the team uh, we hired in a, as ad hoc, as needed basis. But it, it, it was rather, you know, built differently, because, partly because we were so capital constrained. Got it, got it. And, I mean, I think that the investors probably, they were they were happy with the outcome because seeing it was uh, ultimately your, your first significant exit, I would say. And I believe the terms are public. What were those terms? Fabrice? Yeah, so – the company, so the first few years were really struggling. You know, we did one million in revenues in 2002. We did five million in 2003, which is when we became profitable. We did 50 million in 2004 and 200 million in 2005. So the company became a rocket ship. Uh, I sold it uh, a bit early, but as I'd learned from my prior experience, better early than too late. Uh, I sold it for 80 million in cash in uh, June of 2004. And, and I stayed on a CEO for 18 months. Uh, all the investors made 20x. Um, more or less on the, on the capital invested. And, uh, yeah, and everyone had an amazing outcome. All the employees who stayed and who invested did really, really well, made millions. So it, it was a great outcome for all. And it was my first large exit. What's interesting, though, is the most meaningful moment in my life at that point was actually not the day of the exit or the day that we got the 80 million wire or whatever. It's the day we became profitable. The day we became profitable, you know, and I and I paid back the, my credit card debt. I had a hundred thousand dollars in credit card debt, and we made and we made payroll, and we paid the rent, et cetera. Like yeah. then we were saved, and I knew we were we had become the masters of our own destiny. We no longer depended on their parties uh, and on on the goodwill of others to survive. And so profitability was really the day that that was the most relevant. And at the point where we sold, we were so we we're growing so quickly, we were so busy. I didn't even take stock. I didn't realize, you know, like the, I think the only thing I did when I sold is I bought myself a TV, an Xbox, and two tennis rackets. And, and I didn't realize how much money, like, 
you know, I guess net of taxes, I made like $26 million. That's a lot of money. And, and again, I, I didn't realize that. And it took me a little, I still lived in my like studio apartment for like another five years, just like that. Uh, we, we were just too busy, you know, like, uh, yeah. building, building a larger company. We went from, I think, seven employees when we were at the bottom in like August 15, 2003 to like 200 employees a year, you know, a year later, we had to move like four times every time we get offices are so big. We're like, Oh, we'll never fill them. And then we, and then we were growing so fast. We like filled them. So, you know, it, it, we were really, really busy and it was really fun times. Yeah, no, I can imagine, but you know, it's interesting. So you go from 50 to 200 million. I mean, that's unbelievable growth. So I guess, what was the trigger there, Fabrice, to say, you know, maybe it's time to, to take a look at an exit? The, well, the, the, the revenue growth was actually independent from the exit process. So as we were struggling to become profitable, a company had approached us and offered like $8 million to buy us. And I own 53.6% of the company, as I said. So I was actually on the verge of selling the company for $8 million. But they were a French company, and they were – being taking their sweet time to get the deal done, and so by the time um, the the papers started getting done, uh, we had grown, and I wasn't really interested in selling anymore. So then another company came in and offered ten, then another company came in and offered twelve, then another company came in and offered fifteen, then another company came in and offered eighteen, and then another company came in and offered twenty. So all of a sudden, you know, I, there's a twenty million offer at the table, but we're growing really quickly. So I'm like, you know what, I'm not selling. So I, I, I told all these people, and we were talking to, I think, uh, yeah, we have media companies from around the world. And, and at that point, we'd already become profitable. We started having like a million in the bank. And, and we had signed all – so I'll talk about what led to the, that success and the revenue growth. Um, so things were going really well, so I decided not to sell. Uh, then kind of randomly, one of our suppliers of content, which is a Japanese company that was publicly created in the same space – came in in March of 2004 and said, okay, we'll buy you. We're offering un- unsolicited. I, I, they came in and said, out of the blue, we're buying you for 40. And that was so much money. I'm like, okay, I need to take this seriously. So I, I hired an investment bank, right, which is called Broadview. Uh, we ran an auction, and they that Japanese company ended up winning. But we in the process of running the auction, we doubled the price, and we ended up selling for 80. And it also taught me that having a banker to is, is in the sale process is very effective. It, it got the price up significantly. I mean, doubled it in this case. But more importantly, they played the role of backup uh, while I could be the good cop with the potential buyers. And and so you don't want to alienate uh, your buyers in the process of getting the deal done. And so having someone that you can blame for asking for things uh, and by saying, oh, they're telling me that this is not marketed and this is, this is not fair, you know, and blame them is an amazing way of going. And it's totally worth the amount of money. Now, in terms of what was driving that revenue growth from like 5 to 50 to 200, um, we were a B2B to C provider. So we were not directly selling to the consumers. We were selling to the mobile operators. And it just took me two years to get the first contract done. And, and that was a very arduous process. I mean, big, large companies like uh, Verizon don't necessarily want to sign a little startup because they're worried about it and, and legitimately so about viability. Yeah. And so I would go to all the, the, the telco shows like the CTIAs of the world. I would try to schedule meetings. I mean, at first, it's just to get my name and face out there. They wouldn't even want to take a meeting with me. I had no idea who to talk to, how to get BD deals. Um, I kind of bribed Microsoft, which at that time, they were desperate for revenues on MSN, to become the ringtone provider in a BDC way. And that press release kind of led to a random guy in Motorola to reach out for us to provide content to him. And once we had done that... Um, the someone at Sprint asked for 25 pieces of content. That was her first deal. And once that became successful, the, the, the Sprint deal, everyone else wanted to, to do a deal with us because we were the only ones who had license to all the content. And so yeah. all we went from going live on Sprint, I guess, March, April 1 of 2003. Uh, and at that point, we were like dead and broke and to every signing and launching, every me to so signing from after that went live, every major carrier approached us in like April, May, June, July, and we had no money. And so I started coding again. I became yeah, yeah, and and, and started helping build the site. And then we yeah. started launching, and we went live on like AT&T in August 15, and then we went live on like 
Virgin Mobile in like September one, and then we went live on Altel in October. Like, so we started launching all these operators. Yeah, and so a combination of deploying every single operator in the U.S. Uh, and like the top 20, basically, and increasing the product offering and them releasing more and more phones that would support the contents led to the massive growth. And so that led it from 5 to 50 to 200. And it, it was an amazing rocket ship. And it was an amazing story. That's fantastic. And and you, this was to Foresight, right? That was a company that acquired Singy? That's correct. Got it. And did you have any type of insights or learnings that perhaps say, you know were different to Oakland when doing this transaction? Well, uh, very different insights in the sense that I realized, you know, having a banker makes a lot of sense. Uh, selling a bit earlier than later uh, uh, probably also makes sense in terms of making sure you're monetizing, taking cash instead of stock. Um, yeah, the, I, I, arguably I sold to the one company as well. Uh, I, I didn't pick the buyer particularly well because I didn't realize the culture shock. I mean, we, we were in the ground floor at the beginning of the mobile revolution. And we were the only ones who had a lot of money and were very profitable. We had the opportunity to buy Shazam US for like a million dollars. We could have bought like all these different companies and rolled them up and, and had them be part of operating. And I think it would have positioned this to be dominant in the smartphone world once the smartphones started being released. And of course, this first iPhone came out in 2007. Um, the problem is the Japanese didn't do that, didn't want me to do that. And, and, and getting them to approve anything became impossible. And and so I offered to buy Shazam for a million. They said no. I mean, and, and they kept saying no to all the different creative things I wanted to do. And so at the end of the day, I stayed for 18 months because it was still a rocket ship. It was still a lot of fun. But after 18 yeah. months, I'm like, you know what? To just manage it and take all the profits and cash and send it to Japan, you don't need me. And yeah. so um, I sold in May, June 2004. I stayed a CEO until November 2000. Five, and then I'm like, you know, you don't. If you're not going to let me conquer the world, like this is not that interesting to me. So uh, I left then to to go and build the next company. Yeah, um, that's OLX, right? So yeah, that's, that's when OLX. you actually conquer the world, and and OLX a massive impact. So so tell us a little bit about OLX. Yeah, so I I'd, I'd always wanted to build marketplace businesses. So Auckland, you know, and and frankly, Dedimate in Latin America kind of fell in, in that mode. Zingy was really the exception. Zingy, I wanted to be an entrepreneur, and I'm like, what can I do to be, what companies can I build to be, to remain an entrepreneur in the, in the world of constrained resources? But now, in 2005, I, I, my, I figured the resource is not that constrained because A, I had my own money I could invest in building a startup, and B, VCs who had turned me down for Zingy either, you know, regretted it. And, and a lot of these also in the later stages came and approached me for money. And of course, I'm like, look, I don't need money anymore, but you can fund my next business. So I started thinking through what I wanted to build. And Craigslist was really starting to take off. And and I felt, you know, there's a real opportunity to do something better. And, and so I, I actually went to Craig and I said, and to Jim, and I'm like, look, you guys are creating a massive public service to the community uh, by offering this free service, but frankly, you're not doing a very good job. Um, you, you're not moderating the content, so it's full of spam, it's full of scams, it's full of duplicate contents, it's full of prostitution, personals, it's full of murders, and it, it, there's a pretty easy, I mean, it, it takes a lot of work, you, know, you need to hire a thousand people to moderate the content, but there, there are things we could do to, to, to improve the quality of the experience, and by the way, you know, think of who are the primary decision makers in all household purchases. It's women. Uh, women decide the house that you buy, the, the babysitter that you hire, the, the clothes that you're buying, the, the car you're driving. And you need to create an environment that's extremely safe and friendly to women. And, and Craigslist is really the most horrible environment for that. So I went to them and like, look. I, I, I'll run it for free, you know, like, uh, let's take this platform and let's make it something magical and, and let's change the lives of hundreds of millions of people. You don't need to give me anything. You know, maybe give me, give me some equity on a vesting schedule. And if you don't like me after one year, you know, before I vest, you fire me. And, and, but they didn't care. They didn't want to prove it. They liked it the way it was. They didn't want to prove the product. They didn't want to prove services. So and then I tried to buy them and they also said no. And so I'm like, okay, you know, I could, maybe I could do something better. Um, and I guess OLX was born then. And uh, I'd been brainstorming with a friend uh, from McKinsey who had become a venture capitalist, uh, Jeremy Levine at Bessemer. And he, uh, we tried to buy a few classified sites. Uh, um, and uh, the founders of those said no. And so we're like, you know what? Let's go and build it. And uh, so raised uh, $10 million from um, 
Founders Fund and General Catalyst and, and Bessemer. And uh, I partnered with my old buddy, uh, Alec Oxenford, um, whom I, we co-founded Deremate with. Uh, Deremate was a, I'd become like a leader at that point, and so it also freed up Alec and a big chunk of the team. And uh, with Jose Marin, who had been one of the part co-founders of, um, of Deremate. And um, we decided to build uh, OLX as co-founders uh, using, using the Deremate core tech team, uh, which had been built in the Auckland platform. So it's, you know, a lot of people we knew, a lot of platforms we knew in a way classified simpler than auctions. And, and uh, we were like, okay, let's build a better Craigslist for the world and, and, and let's see what happens. Uh, I mean, ideally it would have worked in, in the West, it would have worked in the U.S., but uh, um, we just launched in a hundred countries. We spent like 50K a country to see where we could get some traction. And it just so happened that it took off in four which were Portugal and Brazil and, and India and Pakistan. So we went from 100 to four, and then we, we grew there. And once we became very big and profitable and successful in those, then we re-expanded to, to, to the other countries a little by little. Yeah, no, I remember I, I saw an interview with, with your co-founder, and, and people were, like, really impressed that he would go to India before going to Argentina, <laughs> where he was from. So uh, really interesting strategy there. So so you guys ended up selling. So it was uh, an acquisition done by Naspers. Is that right? Yeah, we sold to Naspers. Look, the reality is this is a company I would have rather not sold. And I didn't want to sell it because it, 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 people – it's really – it's very rare to build platforms that touch the lives of hundreds of millions of people. And we, we were we, – you know, we have 350 million users a month. And when you have that type of scale, everything – I mean, first of all, you have a wonderful impact on, on the lives of so many people. And every day we were getting like thousands of love letters from people telling us we're changing their lives for the better. You know, some woman had told us, oh, she fell in love with her husband again because she was able to get a babysitter and, and go on dates with them. Or someone who needed to make rent and like paid, sold their couch and made money to make rent or found jobs. And millions of people were making a living off the site. And this, especially in very poor countries where – no one is investing in the internet there. No one is creating services for them. And so creating marketplaces for places like Pakistan or, or all the countries of Africa, um, people really enjoying and valuing the effort and, and the, and the platforms we're creating, especially as we're creating, we're bringing trusts and safety in, 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 in markets where there is no underlying trust. And so we're allowing these transactions to happen um, and, and creating sites that became very, very, very large. Now, once you have something that big, also everything you do is statistically significant. And so you can keep testing, you know, when you have that many users, you release a, a feature and kind of immediately, uh, you know if it's going to work or not. And with that type of scale, you can do tests where even a 1% improvement is a massive ultimate outcome. And so disruptive product change becomes, you know, the sum total of 1% improvements done a thousand times over. And it's easy to do when you have that scale. Once, you, If you have a much smaller scale, you know, if you have 100 users or 1,000 users, it's really hard to do because – Nothing's really statistically significant, and you can't tell if it's just a fluke if something happened or if it's actually a real impact from your product decision. So it makes actually improving your product and testing a lot harder and takes a lot longer. So it's not a company I wanted to sell. I, 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 my dream would have been a VCO and founder and run that for the rest of my life. The problem is classifieds is a winner-take-all business. It's not, it's not winner-takes-most. It's literally winner-take-all. And in order to succeed, you need two things. You need market share, and typically you need an 85% market share uh, in any given country. And number two, you need scale, and you need both of these things. If you have market share but not scale, someone can still take in, come in, and take over. And if you have scale but not market share, you can't monetize. And so we had market share in many countries, especially in Brazil and India and, like, many of the emerging markets, but we didn't yet have scale. Um, that, that said, for a long time, we were profitable, we're happy, and everything was great. The issue is we were facing a publicly traded competitor, a multi-billion dollar company out of Norway called Chipset. And for a long time, they were fat and happy in, in, their, in their geographies. They were in Western Europe and the Nordics right. and very profitable, doing very well. And we were kind of fat and happy in our emerging markets. I mean, much less fat because we're, you know, we're sort of a startup, but yeah. we're doing really well. And sadly, they decided to come and attack us in our core markets, and they spent hundreds of millions on TV in Brazil. They spent tens of millions on TV in Portugal. 
which were the two markets that accounted for all of our revenues and all our profits. And so all of a sudden, we found ourselves having to stop monetizing, increase spending dramatically, spend hundreds of millions on TV to fight back. And I, and I, in 2010, you know, it was – imagine going to VCs in the U.S. and telling them, look, I need to raise a few hundred million dollars to spend in TV – in like Zimbabwe, you know, like <laughs> it, 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 it's it's not a it's not a, a pitch that went over well. Maybe it would have been right. different today with the vision funds, uh, but in 2010, our American VCs didn't have the appetite to go and spend hundreds of millions on TV to compete with Shipset, and so Naspers came in and, and offered to both buy us and invest in us. And and the important part was the investing part. Like we needed capital to fight and. They proved to be a very aggressive acquirer because every time we'd go to them and say, hey, we need $100 million, they're like, no, 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 no. You think you need $100 million. What you really mean is you need, two, you need $200 million. And so they were amazing from that perspective because they, they gave us a really big war chest to fight. And with that war chest, we were able to fight back and, and frankly, win the war. So ultimately, we merged versus Brazil, 51% for us, 49% for Shipstead. And then that consolidation led to the company becoming very profitable and very successful. And so we sold out of necessity, right? Frankly, we'd rather not sold, but it turned out to work really well because we got the capital we needed to win the war. And yeah. and, and once we'd won the war, then we became profitable again. And, and, and so the core markets were in a position to expand to a lot of geographies. Got it, got it. So, I mean, after, um, after OLX, the experience you decided to shift gears a little bit, and you started FJ Labs, and you have a, a basically portfolio companies that have been very, very successful, like Uber, Airbnb, or Dropbox. How, how do you decide really to go to the other side of the table as an investor? So I, I never decided I wanted to be a venture capitalist or an investor, but what happened is by virtue of being a consumer-facing CEO for all these years, a lot of young entrepreneurs had already been approaching me for investments and advice, and so... After I had my exit in 2004 from Zingy, I'd already started investing pretty aggressively in startups. And so by 2013, when I, when I left uh, OLX, I actually already had made over 100 angel investments. In fact, in many ways, I was more known as an investor than a, even though I was full-time CEO of a massive company. The thing is, you're CEO of one company and you're an investor in 100. You're more visible in a way as an investor than a CEO. And yeah. so many people thought of me as an investor already even though most of my time allocation was to being a, 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 a CEO because, because that, you know, I was running this massive company. But from a number of deal perspective, you know, so I decided I was only going to invest in marketplaces and come up with like a thesis in heuristics to invest in it pretty quickly. And so in 2013, when I left uh, OLX, I'm like, you know, I like building companies. I like uh, – Investing, and at that at that point, I already pooled all my investments with uh, my current partner at FJ Labs, Jose Marine, and we're like, you know, we'd like to do both these things. Maybe we can create a structure, which is FJ Labs, that allows us to do both of these things. Where every year we can uh, build one or two companies that we co-found and be on the board of and play an operating role in, and every year we can also invest in like seventy-five different startups. And so uh, that the thinking was never, oh, let's become an investor. It's like I, I kind of always have been my entire life, both an investor and an entrepreneur. And so this was just the next step in natural evolution of like, let's continue doing what I'm already doing in a, in a more structured and formal way. Got it. So how many investments have you made so far? So total, we've made over 400 investments. Wow. Uh, we're every year on average, we're investing in like 75 companies. And uh, we've had over 150 exits. So it's also and, – and on these exits, we've had an average 70% IR and 6x multiple. So it's gone really, really well. And that's just you know, on the investing side. And then every year, as I said, we've been building one or two companies, and, and it's gone really well from that side as well. That's amazing. You know, it's a – we have a few people in common, Fabrice, uh, like, for example, Enrique Linares from LetGo or Ander from TicketVis and – and they, they told me that you are one of those investors that is, like, truly authentic and that you have their back. I mean, it's, a, it's remarkable. Yeah. But I think, I think it's, look, if you've been an entrepreneur, you know what it's like to be an entrepreneur. And you, you know, so you can relate to them. Like, you, you understand what the issues they're facing. You can tell them. You can, you can have a very honest discussion with them on strategy, fundraising, et cetera. And, 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 and I've thought long and hard about like what my core value add should be as an, as an investor. And I think it's actually helping them with the things that I've been through and frankly, fundraising. And so I, I actually spent a lot of time helping the companies in the portfolio 
fundraise and introduce them to 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 VCs because I you know FJ Labs is very different from traditional VCs. We're not taking board seats. We don't even expect reporting if you don't want to give us reporting. We're not leading rounds. We're not pricing rounds. We're just like the friendly co-investor who's going to provide you with advice and be helpful. Um, but as a result, we don't compete with VCs, and so we we co-invest alongside VCs, and so they invite us in a lot of their deals, and maybe. More, more importantly, we send them all of our deals. So all of our seed deals, where they go to A, we send them to all the VCs who invest in, in A, and the VCs are happy, the entrepreneurs are happy, and of course we're happy because we get our companies funded. Got it. And and I mean, it's a lot of companies. Hey, Fabrice, how do you track all these investments? So I mean, first of all, FJ Labs is a big team these days. I mean, when you include uh, the apprentices, the IRs, the back office team, etc., there's like 18 of us, maybe. Just as a board leader, more importantly, we built a portfolio management tool that tracks all the investments. Uh, uh, it's a product called Kushim, K-U-S-H-I-M. It's Kushim.vc. And now we have a head of platform. So um, someone wonderful who had joined us as an apprentice uh, while she was at Columbia Business School uh, then joined us to help us actually build a closer relationship to a lot of the portfolio companies, understand uh, their needs, where they're at, and see if there's anything we can do to help them. And so uh, Kelly has been uh, you know, really helping us build a, a tighter and closer connection to all the companies in the portfolio. Got it. And I guess a part of the um, of the investment is, I mean, you, you, were, you were sharing that obviously marketplaces is something that you are excited and passionate about. Is there a specific industries that you're really excited about right now that are uh, unfolding? Yeah, so the, the way we work is we have a thesis, uh, so we of, of what we think the future looks like, and then we invest along this thesis. So in terms of, so I, I don't invest, we invest in all industries, kind of in all geographies, kind of at all stages actually. Though obviously we do more seed and more U.S. deals than anywhere else, but give you a sense of portfolio composition: we're seventy percent U.S., twenty percent Western Europe and the Nordics, ten percent Brazil and India. Uh, from a stage perspective, we're sixty-five percent seed pre-seed. Uh, 25% A and B, and then 10% late stage. And industry, we're frankly across all industries. Now, that said, there is the specificity of focus, which is the business model, which is marketplaces. And in marketplaces, there are three core theses that we're investing in. One is the continued verticalization of the horizontal platforms. And so we're realizing that, you know, from eBay to Thumbtack to Upwork to, uh, to Craigslist, you can actually take some vertical, some categories, and you can create a much better user experience, a much better customer service, uh, somewhere it's a, a better business model. And so, verticalizing the, uh, the horizontals is one core thesis that we're following. Uh, number two is changing the way the marketplaces work. So, in the old days, I mean, think of uh, Craigslist of the world. The buyer and the seller they needed, they you, you you need to interact. You need to interact, in fact, with potentially many different sellers or many different buyers to get one transaction done. It's a lot of work. The, right. the new approach is one where the marketplace picks your, the, the supplier for you, and you don't need to pick them or interact with them. So think of Uber. You're not picking your driver. Uh, or if you go on Thumbtack, you, you, if you want to hire someone to redo your floor, you need to like talk to a lot of floors. You need to pick one. You need to agree on a price and a contract. I mean, it's a lot of work. Um, there's a platform called Renovisa where you need to basically – Take a photo of your floor, give you square footage, and you're done. They pick the price. They they price it out for you. They are the counterparty, even though it's a marketplace, and they pick the supplier. And so that's an approach we're doing in every category, be it services. It could be online services, so the Upwork type uh, products or services, uh, finding a developer, or you know actual services of like renovating your home, or maybe redecorating, etc. Or and and goods. Um, and the third thesis is around B2B marketplaces. And so we're realizing that in the B2B world, a lot of the transactions are still happening the old-fashioned way uh, through Rolodex, through the old boys network, through Excel and email. No one's built real marketplaces. So we're bringing the best practices of the consumer world to the B2B world. So that's the current thesis. And around its thesis, then we meet the, the businesses and it's like, okay, do we like the team? Do we like the deal terms, and do we like the business? 
And do we like the business? I mean, there's a whole bunch of, of variables in there, like uh, market size, business model, et cetera. But one core or comp- key component for us is unit economics. And does the company kind of recoup their customer acquisition costs within six months? Do they get three times their customer acquisition costs and net contribution margin over the first 18 months? And hopefully, can the LTV be way more than that? Um, and, and if when we need a company and the basis of two one-hour conversations, we get comfortable with they meet they meet our thesis and we're comfortable with the team, we're comfortable with the deal terms, and we're comfortable with uh, the business, then we invest. And so we decide very quickly. On average, within, it takes us less than a week to decide if we're investing in a company. That's amazing. So I guess, uh, you know, obviously the early stages, people is a really big component. So I guess what kind of patterns, uh, Fabrice, do you see in founders that have that uh, success potential? The We find that the best founders, and in a way it's unfair, uh, or it, it Amazing storytellers, um, because when you're an amazing storyteller uh, and, and, and you have great control of your numbers and your vision and your ambition, you're going to be able to raise money uh, at every stage. You're going to be able to hire better people. You're going to be able to talk to the, to the press. And so the it, 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 it skews in a way unfavorable, I mean, favorably towards extroverts, relative to introverts, but people are amazing storytellers, uh, but obviously who are smart and gritty and on top of their numbers or, 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 or in a better position to, to raise uh, that, than others. Um, but yeah, I mean, clearly, if you had to pick, though, the key success, the, the one variable, the one thing you want the most to succeed is frankly grit. Uh, over everything else, but if you have a gritty storyteller, you know, like, like you, you've kind of hit uh, the the home run in terms of of what of what uh, of what you want to have. Got it, got it. So if we had to go back to the to the days at Oakland, the Fabrice, and you were able to give yourself just one one piece of advice to your younger self, and perhaps something that other founders can kind of take some value out of it, what would be that piece of advice that you would give to your younger self? I mean, yeah, I mean, look, I should have, well, there are many, there are three, well, the four main mistakes I did then, or three main mistakes, and one where there was optionality, but definitely uh, I should have picked a different VC um, who who understood me better and whose interests were more aligned with me. Uh, Two, I should have had a tag, uh, sorry, drag, um, or a, Three, I mean, there was an option to do secondary and get some liquidity uh, during the transaction. I didn't do that because I felt I wanted to be even very aligned. Uh, but I, I probably should have taken a little bit of money off the table because it would have helped me um, for the next companies and, and frankly, allow me to have be able to even pay rent. Um, yeah. Possibly, I should have sold the company when eBay made the first offer. I mean, it... it, it Unclear because they offered twenty million. I would say, you know, like we just launched, I would have made yeah. fifteen million. But uh, the reality is, not doing that led to the three hundred million dollar offer like a year later, yeah. uh, which was a better out would have been a better outcome had I been in a position to sell. So I could have gone both ways on that one. In both cases, the offer was higher than the big company was worth, and so it, it warranted thinking about it and, and it's in a more thoughtful and, and a person I did. Uh, so no, a lot, a lot of lessons learned. Now yeah. that said, if, if I actually had been able to sell, you know, for 300 million when I was, and I had 40% of the company at that point, um, when I was 24 and I made $120 million, yeah. you know, I might've, I, things might've turned out. I mean, you could say, Oh, you would have been in a trajectory to succeed way more since then. But at the yeah. same time, perhaps I would have been an unsufferable, arrogant prick, you know, and or think these things come so easily, I would have wasted it all. I mean, it's, it's unclear um, that it would have led to different outcomes from where I am today or better outcomes from where I am today. Yeah. Uh, partly where I am today comes from the hard lessons uh, that came from uh, at that time where I didn't monetize. I made a lot of key, of, of key mistakes at everything from hiring to VC selecting to contract negotiating to consider to thinking around the exits. Uh, that allowed me to not make those mistakes and improve on them on a go-forward basis. Uh, if things come too easily at first, maybe you think they keep coming easily, and, and, and I wouldn't have necessarily learned the hard way. I mean, there's something to be said for, like, learning the hard way and putting in the work. Um, you know, when, when you look at, like, these uh, 
artists or these uh, athletes who make hundreds of millions of dollars end up going bankrupt. In a way, I think it's because things maybe came too easily and they felt it would keep going forever, even though it doesn't. So they don't actually understand or learn the underlying principles that really lead to lasting, viable success. Absolutely. You know, and, and the other day we had Ander from TicketBiz, and uh, we had a really nice conversation. And he mentioned that one of the best pieces of advice that he got before he actually went on to, to take on the deal was from you. And and you, you said, you said, this is your first company. You know, how much... Uh, more risk are you willing to take? You know, just say, you know, yeah. maybe you want to take a look at selling or maybe, you know, you want to stick it around and increase the risk. But he did mention, Fabrice, that uh, that was one of the best pieces of advice that he got. So I'm sure that all the founders that you work with receive a tremendous amount of value from all these experiences. And, yeah, and I, I don't even told you how, how I ended up investing in the company. I was in Buenos Aires at the OLX office, and I did a Skype call. He was uh, in Bilbao, if I recall correctly, and we did the call. I loved the pitch. I loved him on the call. In the, on the call itself, I committed the $250,000 investment or whatever. Like, uh, So I, I think it was like one-hour Skype call. I'm like, and that was it. I was in. I'm like, I'm in. I'm invested. Just send me the docs. And wow. so you know that, that level of turnaround and the size of this, something that entrepreneurs appreciate because they rarely get it from VCs uh, beyond, you know, the advice. Yeah, absolutely. And that was $165 million, so I'm sure that you guys did very well on that. We did very well, and, uh, and we've continued to build a relationship with them ever since. And we, you know, now we co-invest together in new deals, and we're, you know, we're one sure I'd back him and whatever else he does ever again. That's fantastic. Well, Fabrice, you've been very generous with your time. So what is the best way for folks that are listening to reach out and say hi? Um, I, I guess uh, Twitter or LinkedIn or, or Facebook, frankly, all three are reasonably reachable. And they can follow me on my blog um, where I write about everything and anything. It's uh, just FabriceGrinda.com. Got it. Well, Fabrice, it's been an honor to have you. I definitely learned a lot, and I'm sure the people that are listening as well. So thank you so much for being part of the show today. Thank you for having me. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.